0: Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to this week's Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, my guest is Curtis Finlay. You'll hear a lot about him shortly. Curtis has an interesting and diverse interest in comics, and had a great time talking for about an hour. I think you'll really enjoy this week's episode. Show notes, as always, are available at classiccomics.tumblr.com. Please leave feedback on iTunes, and if you have feedback for me specifically, pick me at Jason Sachs on the Twitters. Thanks. Hope you enjoy. Hey, so welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade for this week. I'm joined by Curtis Finlay, who works for the Library of American Comics, as well as running his own podcast, the Epic Marvel Podcast, which I highly recommend. A great show, especially for folks who love comics history like me. Thanks for joining. My pleasure to be here. So you have kind of a diverse interest in comics, as I do. You don't just love classic comic strip work, but you love Marvel work as well. Why don't we start by talking about um, the work you're doing on the For Better or For Worse collections?
1: Sure. These are really nice hardcover books in the style that LOAC, or the Library of American Comics, usually publishes. If you're familiar with this, this uh, publishing company, uh, they've been doing this for 10 years, over 10 years now. They pride themselves in providing the best reproductions that we can possibly get the dailies in black and white, the Sundays in color, if possible, and preferably doing it from syndicate proof sheets so that you get the best reproduction and providing contextual essays before or after sometimes that will help frame the comic strips in the era that they're produced. Cause that's always important, especially when you're mm-hmm. looking at comic strips that are really, really old uh, and that people aren't from that era. Now for better for worse is one of the newer ones. So we don't have to lean so heavily on that but I really wanted to present Lynn Johnston's incredible comic strip as it was originally published back, you know, starting in 1979. It ran for 30 years, and it was this ongoing narrative that the characters grew in real time, and the developed and had adventures and and families of their own, and the stories just kept expanding and expanding. And it's really quite a, an amazing tale if you read it from start to finish, but its publication history has been a little spotty, especially in the early years when Lynn Johnson was first starting out, because when when her strips were collected into books, they, she wouldn't include all of them. There are some that, of course, she's embarrassed by or didn't really care for. And she would rearrange the order of the strips. And in the early books, the Sundays weren't included. They were included in other collections, if they were included at all. And oftentimes, they were in black and white. So I really wanted to push Dean, who's the editor, and Lynn uh, to, to do this in an exact chronological publication, all in, in chronological order with the Sundays inserted in there in color. It wasn't a hard sell for Dean because that's how he loves to put books together. And Lynn, uh, she warmed up to the idea once I kind of explained it as a warts and all kind of collection, but being able to see how she developed in her career and developed in her art style and that kind of thing. One of my, the biggest roles that I'm playing is recoloring the Sunday strips they have all of the, the black line scans in their archives ready for us to use, but the coloring was different. When they went back to re- reprint these strips after her strip had ended, they recolored them with modern color palettes ah. and modern colorings techniques. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of, you know, the gradient fills and that kind of stuff that just didn't exist when, back when the, the color palette was limited to 64 colors back in 1979. And I wanted to pre- present these as they were originally published. So I went back and got a whole bunch of newspaper reference and that kind of stuff so I could match the colors as they originally appeared. That's been the the biggest job, but, man, it's rewarding when you see them. Uh, I color them on Photoshop. When you see them all finished and presented there uh, in the finished book, they look really, really good.
0: Yeah, of course, that's a big controversy with a lot of modern superhero comics as well. The recoloring takes away some of the original charm and Obviously, the artists are creating for that type of coloring as well. So, adding the more modern coloring to it will distort what the intent was.
1: That's very true, especially when you look at the inking. The inking is done in modern comic, in classic comics, in such a way that when you do the shadows, you you compensate for the the fact that you are only working with a limited color palette or with uh, with shading the way it is. That's why we have inking. Uh, with big black blotches or cross-hatching is to compensate for the, the the lack of color. I don't want to say lack of color because the color is still there and it's still great. But the lack of depth, I guess, if that if that's what I mean. Uh, and when you look at modern pe- modern artwork, a lot of the times the inking is way more sparse because mm-hmm. they know the coloring is going to round out the characters and the backgrounds and the designs. So they don't have to go as heavy in the inking.
0: And therefore you get this kind of clash in a way of the coloring versus the inking for better or for worse it was always for me a comic that i found very realistic was lynn johnston really committed to to delivering stories that were really based on her family's true life or how much exaggeration did she include and how much did she base these characters on people who she actually knew
1: well initially they're all based on who she knew all of these characters are her family she herself is ellie and Rod is John, uh, and her kids are Michael and Elizabeth. And ever since she started doing these comic strips, she drew on things that she already knew as a parent growing up. She, she, she naturally was drawn to drawing family-oriented gags, especially around parenting and uh, early childhood, that kind of stuff. And when she was offered the role of the, uh, the syndicated strip, that's just kind of how she continued to do things. Uh, because you know you write what you know, and she—that's she, how she knew it. She was a, a single parent who was raising a kid and doing a full-time job in, you know, marketing and uh, in cartooning and such. And so, when you're a full-time parent and a full-time career woman, those two are going to intersect, I'd imagine. And so she got she got remarried and she had another kid, and and when she started the comic strip. She was able to put all of this, these memories and, and funny things that had happened in her life in, down on paper into, uh, into the comic strip, and that's what we see now. And she was a few years behind. She says that she gave her kids a three-year gap Because because there's always issues with kids making fun of what's happening in the comic strip, thinking that it's happening in real life, that kind of thing. So when her kids were nine, the kids in the comic strip were still five and six. So so there was that little bit of a gap. And eventually, especially once the kids got to high school, and especially when April, the the third child, was introduced in the 90s, the strip really started to diverge at that point because she doesn't have a third child of her own. So the dynamic between the three kids was something that was unique to the comic strip. And she started taking the characters on adventures in their own way. And Michael, his career path as a writer, and Elizabeth, her career path as a teacher, like that's all made up. So, so the story really took a life of its own starting kind of in the, in the 90s.
0: I guess as she really became more and more, she saw these characters as being distinct from her own life. So she took inspiration from what she lived through. Um, Absolutely. But then these characters became them, their own individuals. Yeah. It's the way a lot of artistic inspiration works, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think it's just necessary as well to branch out. Once your children become old enough to make their own decisions, then that's you, you, they start to make decisions that uh, uh, maybe you wouldn't make or you don't want them to make. So Lynn Johnson
0: makes her characters go in the direction she wants them to go in (laughs) your kids will go the directions they want to go so you may as well let your characters go the directions they need to go what i love the most about that strip though as you said was that the characters grew up at kind of as we were watching them the only other comic strip i could think of that did that was gasoline alley which of course has become a beloved book and reprints as well right where did she take her inspiration for that or was it just her approach to allow the story to grow as it needed to grow
1: I think that it's natural. it was natural for her to age the, the characters because since she was drawing on real life, it's like eventually you want your toddler to be able to talk and mm-hmm. learn about that because there's some great humor and great gags that you could pull out of that situation. But then once your character's talking, you've aged your character. The first day of school or kindergarten is going to bring some great gags. So as soon as you put your character in kindergarten, well... She made the decision that they'll be in kindergarten for one year and graduate, like she'll follow the calendar year. That was a decision that I think came naturally. She says that it was a conscious thing, that she started out gag a day, and then eventually she decided these characters to age. But I feel like, especially when you read the comic strip, Elizabeth is like two years old when it starts. At one point, she just learns to, to walk, and
0: mm-hmm. then
1: she's walking after that. And, you know, there's aging right there. Right off the bat. But she took a more realistic approach to the aging process than Gasoline Alley. Because one of the most famous stories, sorry if you haven't read this comic strip yet, is when the family dog dies. At some point, the dog's going to die because dogs don't live that long. The, The dog had already outlived its typical lifespan in the strip, so she had to write the dog out of the strip. With Gasoline Alley, how old is Walt Wallet now? He's like over 125 years old, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So uh, they keep those characters going, even though it's not realistic.
0: But she had aged them all in real time. uh, Absolutely, yeah. Which is remarkable. And and it also felt very much like a portrait of an ordinary Canadian family.
1: I think so. And I, uh, I was really drawn to it as well, me being Canadian myself. There are a few little instances that are like, oh, yeah, that's a Canadian joke. There's one gag where Elizabeth is sent to the store to buy a bag of milk. And people who are from Canada are like, bag of milk? I get that. And everyone a in America is like, what the hell heck is a bag of milk? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's just that uh, you, you could get little holders. They come in these little satchels, these little kind of rectangular <laughs> satchels, and you put it in a holder and you snip off the corner and you can pour it out. And that's just something that we all grew up with. I think only a couple of provinces in the East, like Ontario, have that now. You don't get that in BC. Can't find satchels and milk anymore. I was, I think, a couple years younger than Elizabeth, or maybe one year younger than Elizabeth when I was growing up. So I was reading these comic strips and I was doing the same. I was in high school at the same time Elizabeth was in high school. I graduated the same year she did. And Mm -hmm. so it was really cool to kind of, walk alongside or have these characters walk alongside my life
0: yeah it's a unique experience isn't it um, very unique i happen to be about the same age as maggie and Hopi from love and rockets nice and because of that like i actually went to punk rock shows when i was in my teens and yeah now yeah. i'm middle-aged and like i really feel like their lives are parallel mine. they've kind of been lifelong friends of mine
1: that's really cool yeah
0: <laughs> those uh, are great
1: books love and rockets is fantastic.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I really think that they're both, both of the brothers are my absolute favorite cartoon, or among my top five favorite cartoonists. Jaime has just gotten to a point now where his line work is so immaculate, and his storytelling is so minimalistic that it's a different reading experience than it used to be. You have to bring so much of your own background to the stories, but it adds so much to it because the, the level of work you have to put in is interesting. The stories yeah. work really on multiple levels now, to me.
1: That's one of the things I like about For Better For Worse as well, is the multiple levels. Because you have, um, especially when you get toward the end of the comic strip, you have three generations of this one family. Uh, no, four generations. You have Ellie, of course, Ellie and John. You have their kids. And now their kids have kids, or at least mm-hmm. Michael has kids. And then also Ellie's parents move, like the, her her dad moves in. <laughs> Uh, to their house with them. You have these four generations living under the same roof. When I was a kid, of course, like I said, I was relating to Elizabeth because she was the age that uh, I was. And now that I'm redoing these strips and I'm going through the 80s when Ellie is in her 30s to 40s, now I'm that age. And I Mm -hmm. have kids that are her age. And I relate to the comic on a completely different level now. I, I get the parent jokes far more than I did when I was reading it as a kid. And uh, in another 30 years, when I read it again, I will relate to the grandparents. (laughs) Or I'll relate to the the part of the strip where Ellie and John are grandparents.
0: So relating to it now as a parent, you have young kids in the house. It really does resonate with you again at this point in your life.
1: Absolutely. I had a friend who told me the other day, he just got a cat and he's been rereading Garfield. And he didn't realize how much of a, a cat comic strip that actually is. Um, Of course, it stars the cat, but the jokes like the relationship between the cat and the (laughs) owner is like, that's exactly what it's like. And he Mm -hmm. didn't realize that. And I didn't realize this either when I was uh, not a parent. Like these jokes that she's making are exactly true. Every single thing that happens as a parent to these characters and for better or for worse happens to every parent. It's it's incredible.
0: We haven't talked at all about her art style, which was. I think, also very naturalistic. Um, not a lot of exaggeration. You know, she shared the comics page with uh, kind of two poles, I guess. One was the Charles Schulz pole, which is very simplified. The other would be the Bill Watterson pole, which is very ornate for its way. in its way. Um, she kind of sat in the middle ground.
1: That's true. Her characters were, they weren't as extreme caricatures as Peanuts is. Or like Calvin and Hobbes as well, because, you know, Calvin's definitely yeah, a caricature character. Uh, just with more line work and such. Her, her characters have more realistic proportions. She didn't shy away from exaggeration, though. I mean, if Ellie was extremely angry at, at Michael, her mouth would just become super huge, and her hair would stand up on end or whatever, and there, there would be that element of exaggeration as well. She's a very cartoony, funny person, and that, that comes out in her drawings, especially in the early years. As she went through the 90s, <clears throat> and especially into the 2000s, her drawings became much more serious, as her stories did,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and more detailed. She started working with more assistants that would assist with things like backgrounds and that kind of thing. And, and her drawings just don't have the same element of cartooniness as, as it did in the beginning. Uh, she definitely went through an evolution. And if you put those strips, something from 1979 to 19, or to 2010, eight side by side you can still tell that they're the same but it's so drastic
0: so what why do you feel this has become such a passion project for you i hear your love for the strip coming through and it's taken up i'm sure a lot of your life why is it something you ended up devoting so much of your time to
1: well i mean uh necessity of restoring those comic strips is that's just something that to...
0: <laughs> i'm just curious like uh, you know I, I spent four years Sorry? writing the american comic book chronicles in the 1990s because I felt like no one was going to write this history unless I wrote the history. And so getting it all down and getting it published was just an important life goal for me. As well as just a, a fun project. I'm just curious what motivated well, you want to get Well, that's it.
1: Uh, the reason why I wanted to do this strip is that I've been buying these for better or for worse books for a long time. And recently, as of like seven or eight years ago, Andrews McNeil started publishing a new series of treasuries that went back to the beginning and collected all the comic strips. They put in the Sundays, and I was like, finally someone's doing this. But they actually did a pretty terrible job. The layouts were just a mess. And the the Sundays had that modern coloring that I wasn't so keen on. And they started inserting these new strips that uh, Lynn drew when they started rerunning them in the newspapers that kind of filled in gaps or helped with continuity issues. And she tried to mimic her old style. But it's not quite the same, because I don't think you can ever truly go back to the way you you used to draw in the past. They did these two versions of the Treasuries, and a a third volume came out, and it was half the size. And the fourth volume came out a few years after that. And then the line just stopped dead completely, like no more volumes came out. And I could tell that the syndicate, this, this publisher, just didn't really care to finish it off. They weren't putting that much effort into it. And so when I got the opportunity to meet uh, Lynn Johnston at the Vancouver Comic Arts Festival that was here in town, uh, I pitched to her the idea of starting fresh and, you know, my idea of what I wanted for a series of books. And she was thrilled because, you know, Andrews McNeil didn't seem to have any interest in it. And she's just happy that someone had an interest in it. And they want to keep their brand alive, of course. So we started working on that. And Lynn's been great. She actually lives in North Vancouver, very close to me. Uh, she moved to town recently. And so we've been able to work together producing these books. And uh, uh, she has little strip commentary on the side notes in the margins on some of the strips and uh, uh, makes sure that everything is in order and Yeah, and I feel like it's definitely a product that we are both proud of. Uh, we're both happy with the results. Uh, and I, I think they look just great. Uh, it's They are large, large books. They are over 500 pages each because we're trying to cram all 30 years into nine volumes. Because this, yeah, because this strip went on for 30 years, we don't want it to take 30 years to collect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we decided to up, The the page count to, you know, a typical library of American comics book is maybe 250 to 300 pages. Because these ones are 500 pages, we're managing to collect over three years at a time. So you can see these characters age uh, in a fairly rapid rate. It's very different than reading it at a day at a time. We're going to be able to collect all nine volumes in about five years, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're on fire with that. I mean, the Dick Tracy line has taken, what, 12 years so far, and it's still not quite done?
1: Yeah, I mean, that one, the Dick Tracy line started before Library of American Comics was an actual thing. IDW started it themselves, and they set the precedent of collecting about a year and a half to two years at a time in one of their books. And so when Dean was asked to take over the Dick Tracy books... He just kind of followed the same pattern. Of course, he made the, the the strips, the books, at a bigger scale so that you could see the artwork and see the, the words a lot better. But yeah, he kept that pattern going, and now we're up to volume 25, and volume 26 will be coming pretty soon, out of a total of 29 volumes. By the end of 2020, all of Chester Gould's Dick Tracy will have been collected. It's just incredible. That's an amazing achievement. Absolutely amazing, especially in today's book market the fact that these books keep on coming out and that there's still interest that people are still buying them is is incredible and it speaks and a tremendous testament to chester gold and dick tracy's appeal even in this modern world
0: yeah it just shows that uh quality will get people's attention i just love the fact that each volume is is of equally as high quality as the one before with great liner notes with beautifully reproduced artwork because other, otherwise this work would be lost to posterity
1: absolutely yeah, and it takes someone with the passion and the drive to do that, and that's Dean for sure. It also helps that Chester Gold's estate has a, an incredible collection of syndicate proofs, and so mm-hmm. Dean Dean doesn't have to do any of the the major hunting, uh, like he does with like the Superman strips, in order to to find the stuff to fill the books. It's all there. It makes it really a lot easier to be able to put these books together, which is. Incredible blessing to be able to have that resource.
0: So, how did you end up pitching the, for better or for worse, the Library of American Comics? How did you get involved with them?
1: I'd actually done another book with them in the past, uh, which we can get into um, in a little bit if you want to, called uh, Chuck Jones: The Dream That Never Was.
0: Ah, yeah. And, I remember and,
1: that. Yeah, that was a that was my project, my first project with Dean. And so basically, with this one, I just emailed Dean and said, Hey, do you want to do for better or for worse? And he said, Absolutely, I do. It was as easy as that, because I had already done a book with Dean. So we started working on it from that point. And then it was just a matter of getting Lynn on board, which was uh, fairly easy as well. And then of course, you know, all of the legal stuff in behind contracts and uh, licensing agreements and royalties and all that kind of stuff had to happen. I'd, I didn't have anything to do with that. They have their own lawyers. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it's it's only a matter of whether Dean thinks these books will sell or any publisher thinks these books will sell. Because if you right. have a, an obscure strip, I mean, I've pitched a couple of other things to Dean that he's like, you know, there's no way that we can do that because there's no, there's absolutely no market for it. That's Frank right. Tashlin, Looney Tunes director Frank Tashlin, has an incredible single panel comic strip called Van Boring. And it is so, so good. I love it. It has a great classic 1930s cartoon look to it. It ran for about two and a half years. And I would love to see it collected. It has a great story behind it, a great history behind it. But I don't think anyone's going to buy it, except for maybe a few Frank Tashlin fans. And even those, you know, the fans who love Looney Tunes, they know Chuck Jones. They know Friz Freeling. They know Bob Clampett. Maybe some of them know Frank Tashlin which is a shame because he's one of my favorite Looney Tunes directors, but no one's going to buy his comic strip. (laughs) So maybe uh, at some point I'll throw up a Kickstarter because his, I talked to his estate and his son, it would be, it would be on board to publishing it. But uh, at this point, it's not a financially responsible decision. (laughs) The
0: books would uh, just not sell well enough. Well, that's like Kingaroo was to me, the great unfinished reprint series. Those strips are wonderful and uh, apparently it sold terribly. But, I mean, they're just an absolute delight.
1: Yeah, the sales on that one were definitely disappointing. Bruce Canwell, who headed that project, it's, it's his favorite strip. And he loves it to bits. And he would love to keep on going. But, you know, you got to listen to the sales numbers. If the fans aren't there to support it, then there's not a... You, you just can't do it. You can't keep on going. Even something as popular as Little Abner by Al Cap... We've done nine volumes, and unfortunately, that series has had to stop as well, because the sales just keep on dwindling with each volume that comes out.
0: I was wondering about that, because it seemed like it had been a long time since we saw Little Abner.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, that one is, it's on, I think Dean says right now it's on hiatus. I don't know that he's said outright that it's cancelled, but right now, there are no plans to publish more Little Abner. I think maybe sales have to catch up have to get those books out of the red before they right. make any more decisions. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like a lot of the old comic strips are becoming more and more forgotten these days? That the cohort that knows them is aging out?
1: Definitely. Absolutely. The main fan base for Library of American comics I would say is probably in their fifties and sixties. And they are a devoted fan base. These are the strips that they grew up reading in the forties and the fifties. And those are the collections that they bought when they were kids in the in the paperbacks and that kind of stuff. And so when these collections come out, these are the people who are buying them. Uh, there is a growing group of my age, the, th- the 30s to 40s, who are buying these books as well. But it's small. It's really small. Mm-hmm. But it's that's why it's important for us to get these books out so that they are collected and available for the younger generation who does take an interest in it uh, to collect. This is the same as any sort of medium. Uh, the modern generation is not going to be as keen to pick up old stuff as, as the previous generation. People mm-hmm. in their 50s and 60s will be on board with old black and white movies. People nowadays, they're not going to watch all these black and white movies. Some of them will pick it up out of curiosity, and some of them will love them, but not, not all of them. It's just going to be more and more obscure as it goes on.
0: Yeah, as you say, it's the natural way of the world in a lot of ways, and as a historian... Myself, it's frustrating, but also I can relate to it. It's the approach that I had when I was a kid also. I just didn't care that much about the historical side of things. I enjoyed yeah. it when I was exposed to it, but it was natural to be focused on the here and now.
1: Absolutely, and some people stay with the here and now, and then some people, when they get older and they want to be historians, they go back to the era that was their childhood. So now a lot of, there's a lot of historians that are talking about stuff from the 80s. Which doesn't seem so long ago, but that was thirty years ago, and they're making sure that their childhood and the stuff that's important to them is now kept in posterity, like the people from the fifties were collecting the stuff from the thirties.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to think, like you know, the music that was popular twenty years ago was from nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, like Chumbawamba. yeah, exactly. Nirvana's 30 <laughs> years ago now. I mean, it it's bizarre to think that way. It's actually helped the sales of my book because we cover the 1990s and it, the generation that's becoming nostalgic for that is in their late 30s and into their 40s these days. And you know, they're they're pining for a time when life was simpler in some ways.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, to them simpler because their parents did everything for them. <laughs> that's that's you, you remember childhood so so nicely because your parents would shield you from a lot of the stuff that's going on in the outside world.
0: <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. When I look back, yeah, my I felt like I had a very serene, easygoing life. It turned, yeah. You know, when I think back, my father had a kind of itinerant life with his jobs and there was a lot of tension in the house about money that I was just shielded from. Yeah. Um, which I guess means I had good parents.
1: I think so. Yeah, definitely. And you just remember fondly the TV shows you watched and the family trips you took or whatever.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, and a lot of the comics you talk about on your podcast, too. <laughs> yes. It's, it's funny. I have the, the, the Marvel 2-in-1 covers up that you covered in January on my yeah. screen. I'm thinking, I just have such warm memories of reading these comics back in the day with my you know $1. fifty allowance buying issues of Marvel 2-in-1 and stuff like that. What was the first comic you ever got? It's very funny, actually, because it's Incredible Hulk 182. Oh, really?
1: <laughs> the yeah. one right after
0: Wolverine? Yeah, there's a tiny scene of Wolverine leaving at, at the beginning of the issue. And yeah. then the Hulk encounters two escaped criminals called Hammer and Anvil, who now that I look back were a black exploitation pair. Bald black man and a big white man who are chained together. An alien comes down and gives them powers, and they fight the Hulk.
1: That is uh, awesome.
0: Super cheesy. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> But I have such a distinct memory of that. The alien says, come with me, I beseech you. And the black guy says, you ain't beseeching me nothing. <laughs> but, well, so you're a little younger than me. When did you start reading?
1: Uh, reading comics, you mean? Reading I, comics, I mean. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I,
0: you probably were um, reading early if you were like me, but yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. But but the first comic I got was Web of Spider-Man number 60, 1980, okay. 1989. And I got it as a birthday present from a kid who came to my birthday party. In fact, two kids gave me that same comic at that birthday party. I had two copies of it.
0: because oh, wow. that Because
1: that was on the spinner rack at the time. <laughs> so, you know, they were looking for a gift. I, I, I think that's great. What a great gift to give is just a comic book. And that got me into things. I, I of course, knew who Spider-Man was because how could you not? But I read this comic. And in this particular issue, Spider-Man is fighting Goliath, this 20-foot-tall guy, bad guy. And Spider-Man can fly. Spider-Man has super strength. Spider-Man can shoot lasers out of his eyes. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know Spider-Man could do all of this stuff. (laughs) It wasn't until way, way, way later that I understood the context that this was the cosmic Spider-Man era. He had the powers of Captain Universe at the time, and I had no idea.
0: (laughs) So what, what do you think motivated those kids to give you comics if it wasn't something you were into at the time? was it something well, I mean, that
1: was available? Yeah, it was something that was available, and um, they, maybe they were into comics and such. But it, comics wasn't just the, the same sort of culture as it is now. That was something you just kind of passed around, and you know, one kid had a comic, and you give it to another kid. People brought him to school, and people would read over each other's shoulders and that kind of thing. And uh, we collected the trading cards. The trading cards came out around that time as well. We mm-hmm. collected a lot of those. That taught me the history of the Marvel Universe through all the, the information on the back.
0: So a lot of the stuff you talk about on the podcast is stuff that you were countering, kind of in reprint form, or like with years of perspective. What do you think of like the work from the sixties and seventies that you talk about?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of it is hit or miss, which is every era. Yeah, you, you, every era has its good stuff. Every era has its bad stuff, and I'm trying to experience all of it because I like to approach it from a historical perspective, like you do. Um, I want to know what people were talking about in the 60s and understand the Cold War era that these were written in and how was Stanley approaching these characters. Um, And a lot of it's cheesy. I I have to go into it thinking, you know, putting my 1960s cap on and saying, okay, I'm reading a book from the 1960s. I'm going to enjoy it for what it is. A lot of people can't read Stanley's stuff because it's so verbose and so cheesy. But I'll get in there and try to read it thinking... What would I be thinking if I were reading this in the 60s or like in the 80s? What would
0: I be thinking about if I were reading this in the 80s? Yeah, the context is, is so much a part of it. 80s Marvel is so different from 70s and 60s Marvel, too. Jim yeah. Shooter-era Marvel kind of transformed everything.
1: It did. And then 90s as well. You, everyone talks about the 90s era of Marvel being kind of the Dark Ages or whatever. And each era has its distinct style. And it, and that has to do with the context of the time. It has to do with what was happening politically in the world. It has to do with what was, the trends, the the fashion trends, and uh, the technology that was available to create comics, really dictated a lot of how the it, it, how it looks and how it's read as well.
0: That's a yeah. big part of it. Is just the context in which the work was created. You know, to me though, the most enjoyable thing is when I run into something and just genuinely enjoy it as a work of art notwithstanding the era it was created in, try and appreciate yeah. it for, for what it was, for, for even how it resonates with me today. It doesn't happen as much as I would like, but there's still a lot of cases. I know when I still read like when I read a classic Al Williamson story or something, it'll really resonate with me. At Emerald this year, one of the dealers had a bunch of obscure comics titles. And I just love picking up like there's a comic biography of Barry Goldwater who ran for president in nineteen sixty four.
1: Nice. And yeah, it
0: was actually like really enjoyable to read such a different type of comic, just as a comic. Um,
1: <laughs> I and, love those and, little things too. Absolutely, I, I have an issue of Treasure Chest from, I think it's like 1949 or 1950, and inside there it has a uh, a little biography of John Smithson, who originally uh, went on to create the Smithsonian Institute. <laughs> and so it's like it's just a little eight-page story, but like. I, I would have never have thought to make a comic based on that, and there it is. And and I read it, and it was interesting. I learned something. <laughs> it was great. It
0: really just opens up the idea that you can really do anything in comics. The mainstream, anyway, gets so blind to doing superhero comics all the time. Of course, you both you have feet in both camps, I guess. Doing the co- the commercial comics podcast, and then doing the for better or for worse collections.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love comics of, of all genres I, I was given a book by a friend called 1001 Comics You Must Read Before You Die and at that point this was around 2002 or 2003, I just phased myself out of buying superhero comics, I was just kind of over it tired of them, looking for something new and I got this book and a very very small percentage of the entries are actually superheroes, most of it is just other stuff that I've mm-hmm. never heard of before and that's when I really realized the value of Fantagraphics and Drawn and Quarterly and all of these indie publishers that are publishing incredible, incredible stuff that don't get the same sort of attention as the superhero stuff. Um, stuff from all over the world, things uh, European comics. I was introduced to the wealth of stuff that's available overseas. And that has been translated over over here, the Cordo Maltese. What an incredible book that is! That that I've never heard wonderful. of before.
0: Yeah, 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 I want to do an episode on Cordel Maltese at some point because it's such an amazing, transcendent adventure strip.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really incredible. And uh, Dean's other company, Eurocomics, is in the thick of uh, reprinting all of those, translating them into English. And I think he's just got a couple more volumes to go before he has the complete adventures of Cordo Maltese in English.
0: Yeah, they're wonderful. Did you read the Alex Sinner books from Munoz and Sampaio?
1: I read some of them. I have both of them sitting on my shelf and uh, I've read a good portion of the first volume and it is just incredible, incredible stuff. What an interesting style that he has.
0: Right. Um, And the storytelling gets more and more abstract, which just makes it more and more intriguing to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it goes into some very odd and dark, there's a lot of film noir kind of elements to it. Very, very cool, very cool.
0: Yeah, just yesterday I picked up the new Jacques Tardy book. I don't know if you're a fan of his at all.
1: Yeah, uh, which is the uh, new one?
0: Um, it's the second volume of his father's internment in World War I.
1: Oh, wow, yeah, I, I should pick those up. I have a bunch of the old ones, like uh, It Was the War of the Trenches. What an incredible, oh. incredible book that is. Just to understand what trench warfare was actually like, because uh, mm-hmm. we have no concept of, of that other than the few sentences in history books that talk about it. But to go through the emotions and the sickness and everything that happens, uh, and he paints an incredible picture of that. So to, to, to know that he has a biography of his dad's time during the, the war, like that's incredible. I should definitely pick that up.
0: I should correct myself. It's a it's World War Two era, not World War One I era. I okay, that believe. makes that makes sense then. Timing uh, wouldn't
1: make sense for his dad to have been in World War One.
0: Yeah, but it's done in that three pound per page grid, very straightforward, very direct, and it's just so moving and so interesting. Little tiny kernels of history just kind of tumble out of that book like nothing I've ever read. Right, <laughs> that's amazing.
1: And he's an incredible artist too. He's got like a Uh, He had sort of a cartooniness in the faces, but then super realism when he comes to drawing the landscapes and backgrounds.
0: Well, you did you notice in the War of the Trenches too? They use coloring so beautifully. It starts out bright and optimistic, and everything's very splashy. And then as the story goes on, it becomes more muddy and dark and subdued and gloom. And it's just like this masterful use of the full comic page and the full comic spectrum. All playing together. You mentioned, too, you read a lot of Japanese books. I know you're a big fan of Tezuka.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of my favorites. And I never paid any attention. I watched Astro Boy on TV and stuff like that as a kid. And and Kimba the White Lion, I think, was on TV as well. Uh, But it it was through this book that I already mentioned, the 101 book, that I I was recommended to read a book called MW. And that is uh, – I never knew that Tezuka did adult like, more grown-up, mature content. I always assume that he did stuff like Astro Boy, uh, Princess Knight, and, like, I was familiar with those titles, uh, which is all kid fare. But M.W. is something completely, completely different. It's a dark tale of relationships and backstabbing and mystery and espionage and just all of this stuff kind of all boiled into one. And it's, it's a thick book. It's several hundred pages, and I just plowed through the whole thing. I was riveted from start to finish. What other stuff has this guy done that I've just never been aware of before? He's got an incredible sense of storytelling. His timing, his the execution of how he lays out his stories is just incredible. And other stories that I've read, like his eight-part series on the life of Buddha, is just incredible. Absolutely incredible. The Phoenix story, the, those volumes are extremely hard to come by now. But if you ever get a chance to read the Phoenix ones, you can read them in whatever order you want. You don't have to start at volume one; they are all just masterwork of, of artwork and storytelling.
0: I'm a big fan of his blackjack series too.
1: Yes, yes, and that one's great too. Just the little short stories you get—it's just little serialized adventures. Uh, so you can just read one at a time uh, here and there as you want. And those ones are fantastic too. Uh, they remind me of like I don't know, maybe like the Twilight Zone, where each one has a very specific genre to it. They're, they're all kind of based in the medical sciences and stuff, but some of them are thriller action adventure. Some of them are supernatural. Some of them are romance or whatever. Like it all has, he, he, he goes in so many different directions with blackjack. So it keeps you interested. It, it's a very fascinating way to create a series.
0: They're all done in these kind of bright, bold, over the top styles, too where like yep. everything is hyper dramatic which you can relate to as a fan of american superheroes but at the same time almost self-satirical
1: i would say so and that's that's sort of how the anime and manga genre has been built now i mean if you look at modern stuff that comes out it's even more over the top i mean mm-hmm. you could use uh, dragon ball maybe as an example how over the top is the drama in that that show or that manga it's just it's all of the, the lines and the expressions and the, the power levels and everything is just super, super exaggerated. And that all comes from Tezuka. He, he yeah. started that whole
0: movement. was the beginning of all of that. Yeah. And yet that work still is just wonderful today. It, it works yeah. on all the levels you want it to work on. It's fun, but it's got this. Uh, the thing I enjoy the most about knowing the history of this work is being able to enjoy work on multiple levels in that way. Putting, as you were saying earlier, putting it in the context of its time or in the creator's career or what's going on in their life outside of it, such that like you're really reading things on three or four different levels at the same time, and it just enriches your enjoyment of it.
1: The, the thing I love about Tezuka is that he had a way of writing that was that, that's timeless, I guess you could say. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas when you read Stan Lee from the 60s, you're reading, oh yeah, this is very much from the 60s. Um, but if you read Tezek from the '60s, it reads as fresh as today. All of these uh-huh. stories, Phoenix and Blackjack, were done through the '70s, but it could have easily been something that's put out today, and and it reads that way. It's it's incredible that he had that. You know, I, it, I guess it's more of a simplistic touch to his writing that lends itself to any era. Uh, there are a few things that are dated. His uh, some racial. Stereotypes and treatment towards women and that kind of stuff is definitely dated, but overall, it's it's very timeless kind of writing.
0: Yeah, and I always find that to be the hallmark of great writing—that it'll transcend its era. And the best that Stanley did, I think. Sure,
1: absolutely. The
0: the Galactus saga—I think the overwriting of it kind of adds to the drama of it.
1: Yeah, you can say that. You can say that through his work on Thor as well. Uh, the overwriting really works with just the Asgardian narrative, the the mythological nature of it. <laughs> so it works really well there. Doesn't work as well with, like, X-Men. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. there you go.
0: But the hyper drama of it, too. I mean, it's expressed in all the Marvel movies. I mean, it's, Avengers is suffused with Stanley's vision.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
0: What's something else you've stumbled on or discovered from that book that's really kind of sparked
1: you? When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs.
0: Ah yeah. Yeah. It's become one of my favorite
1: Yeah, Yeah. it's become one of my favorite books. I of course know Raymond Briggs from The Snowman. I watched that television special and seen I've seen that comic as well. But I had no idea what this one is about. And it's incredible. It's what if the Cold War never ended and we're now in the eighties and it's written sort of this is what it would be like in the future of the world. Kind of just going in the crapper and it, it focuses on this elderly couple who live in the suburbs who are not well informed of what's happening with nuclear warfare and mm-hmm. nuclear warfare starts yeah in in Britain and they have no idea what's happening to them they're getting sick it's just it's an incredibly sad and tragic story and it just was like a punch to the gut it left me very emotional after after reading it, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I've never experienced a comic like this before. Uh, And it's become one of my favorites.
0: Yeah. It's just a beautifully, the simplicity of his work too, just pays off so well. Yes. Um, Because it's a little bit of the Scott McLeod theory where you can see yourself in these simplified versions of these people.
1: Yeah. And it's got a great dry British sense of humor, which I love as well. (laughs) It's a, it's, it's so well, well done. And it's only like 60 pages or whatever. It's well worth mm-hmm. anybody who has an interest in comics picking up and who wants to try something new and something different. That's a great call. Another, another one that I picked up because of that book is Pedro and Me. Have you heard of that one by Judd w- Wianek?
0: Oh, you know, I've never read that. Um, it's been on my list forever.
1: Judd is, um, he was on MTV's Real World at one point. He This comic is about his time on the real world. And he was partnered. He had a roommate whose name was Pedro. He, Pedro is was, was a gay man with AIDS. The whole book is about Pedro's, I guess, just how he dies, basically. <laughs> Spoiler alert for the ending. I'm sure you knew that that was going to come. Yeah. But uh, the relationship that they built and then how AIDS affected him in his life uh, and eventually killed him. This was written in a period where... AIDS was, you know, this was the 90s. It was just becoming a thing, an epidemic that people didn't really know about. And so uh, I read it well after everybody knows all about AIDS. But it was still really, really interesting and educational. And another book that left me just emotionally drained after reading it. It's so well done. Um, You really get to know Pedro and understand what he was going through during that time. Really, really interesting.
0: There's a few that I've stumbled on, uh, not stumbled on, but that I rediscovered during the '90s book. Have you read Stuck Rubber Baby? By yes.
1: Yeah, I have. I read that one after Pedro. I, I sought that one out, and it's just incredible as well. That one was really cool because it reminded me of like American Graffiti, where it's mm-hmm. kind of just like a slice of life, kind of a book. It takes you in, it sticks you so dramatically in that specific era. And uh, and it just has really compelling characters. It's funny, too.
0: Yeah. And, and it's interesting how he dealt with with his homosexuality because it's never like explicitly called out in some ways. It's, it's not it's not in the closet, but it's not really called out either. And he's treating it as he treats us as very realistic for the time, yeah. uh, which I found not jarring, but different from what we're used to these days. And so it really helped me also, like, really think about how times have changed. And, of course, with that book, there's also the juxtaposition of the civil rights movement at the same time. Yeah, yeah. You know, his his slightly fictionalized characters growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, and seeing the protests against the racism of the time, which really lends a resonance and also a, a realistic feel to this book that's just incredibly powerful. And yet it still focuses on himself and his family and his friends in a way that really illuminates character as opposed to illuminating the time.
1: Yeah, and that's something that is important because he, otherwise it would be a history book, but instead this is a personal piece.
0: Yeah, and the other one I was going to mention is since we were talking about World War One, have you ever read Enemy Ace War Idol by George Pratt?
1: No, I haven't.
0: So DC put that out as a hardcover about 1990. Pratt's a um, kind of ornate painter, in the kind of John J. Muth style from Moonshadow. It's Hans von Hammer in about the 1950s, looking back on his time as a World War I fighting ace. And it dramatically portrays this, the inhumanity of, of the war in World War One with this gorgeous painted art that just brings everything spectacularly to life. It's just a wonderful work.
1: Nice. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I do like the old enemy ace, Kubert those are a lot of fun
0: yeah those are great too yeah and for what they are they're just so wonderful
1: yeah so i'll check out this uh yeah i'll see if i can track that one down yeah that's good
0: how long have you been doing the epic marvel podcast
1: Uh, i've been doing it for um almost two years now i think it hasn't been too long and it's been really really fun so i partner with a different co host for different episodes, and so I love Marvel's Epic Collections. If you've been uh, looking at these, this line, this imprint, I guess that Marvel has put out called the Epic Collections, is they they're planning to try and collect every single issue in order of their long longest running series, like Amazing Spider-Man and um, Incredible Hulk and that kind of stuff. But unlike the Masterworks, which are publishing them all in chronological order, they're publishing the Epic Collections out of order. So you know you'll get. One year you'll get volume one, next year you'll get volume 25. Mm -hmm. And I love that because then I'm not stuck in the 60s forever. Uh Uh, I can experience some of the 70s, I can experience some of the 80s and the 90s and jump around a little bit because when you have such a long-running series, you don't need to start at the beginning. There are natural jumping-on points all over the place. So I started buying these and they started coming out faster than I can read them. And part of the reason uh, for doing the podcast is to make me read these books. (laughs) Otherwise, they'll just sit on my shelf. But uh, I partner with a different co-host for each volume. So I have one guy, Adam, uh, who has another podcast called Comic Shenanigans. He's doing all of the Spider-Man episodes with me. So we're working through the Spider-Man books and... And then, you know, another person, my brother, is doing all the Fantastic Four books with me because he's a big Fantastic Four fan. And together we're kind of going on these journeys. And just like the Epic Collections, my episodes come out of order as well. So I don't start at the beginning. I'll just mm-hmm. pick, you know, I'm going to do Fantastic Four Volume 17 this time, and then I'll do Hulk Volume f- 3 next time, and then I'll do Defenders. V- Volume 8 next time, um, just so that we can jump around so I'm not stuck in any one particular era or in one particular genre. And it's just so much fun to do this. And then coupled with that, I also interview a lot of these comic creators. So if I'm doing an episode of Moon Knight, I, I did an episode of Moon Knight, and so I called up uh, Doug Mensch and did an interview with him, and I, I did an interview with Bill Sienkiewicz, and I did an interview with editor Ralph Macchio, and took little clips from their interviews and interspersed them in my episodes so that you get some creator input while we're talking. And then release the, the, the full interviews as well so you get the larger story and, and just get to hear them talking. And what a joy it is to be able to talk to the creators of these books. It's, they're, they're just so much fun.
0: Yeah, that's something I love to do and something I'm hoping to do more of on this show as well. is to talk to some of my favorite creators and get their insights into the work they've done.
1: And I hope that people who are listening will pick up some of the books that we've been mentioning because um, I I value so much hearing people's recommendations Mm -hmm. and hearing what they are passionate about because otherwise I wouldn't, I would just stick with the same thing that I grew up with, which was just Spider Man, you know? And I, I, at some point, got tired of Spider Man and Mm -hmm. I would have probably stopped reading comics altogether if it weren't for that book that opened up this whole new world for me. And so uh, if you're looking for something new, please check out these ones that we're talking about. It's just, they, were, there any, great.
0: were there any epics that surprised you, either positive or negatively?
1: I was never a Punisher fan. I've never really cared for that character at all. But then I read the volume called Capital Punishment, where uh, Frank Castle goes to Europe uh, to try and take down the Kingpin who's trying to overtake a whole bunch of European crime bosses. It was a fantastic story written by Abnett and Landing, and drawn by Doug Braithwaite. And it's, it's fantastic. It's sort of got an Italian job sort of style uh, plot where you have an ensemble cast and they all have to kind of do their own thing and that kind of thing. And it's just a really fun, fun story. Not at all what I was expecting from Punisher because, I always think of Punisher as the super violent and uh, does a lot of killing and whatever, you know, that I wasn't interested in that kind of thing really gory artwork, the Steve Dillon kind of stuff. But then going back to classic Punisher and then after that, I went to read some of the first stuff like the Circle of Blood miniseries by Stephen Grant and the stuff that Mike Barron had started doing in the 80s. And it's fantastic. It's not at all like that. Uh, And that that really surprised me so i'm reading a lot more classic punisher i also I was surprised at the daredevil in the 90s fall from grace people always say that that story was a mess but it actually is a pretty big mess <laughs> and i was surprised yeah. at just how big of a mess it actually is there there's some good things in it but overall it was it was a hard read
0: i write about that in my book yeah from grace because at the time it was promoted as a big step forward with the character but yeah everything about that the especially the uh new costume he gets are just awful uh, i think you have I found, to those, under... I, I found those comics almost impenetrable
1: yeah it took me all, i think almost two months to to read that book because i had to just take it in small doses and i had to actually reread a lot of it to because I wanted to, because I'm talking about on the podcast, I wanted to actually really understand the intricacies of the plot because it's a very convoluted plot, mm-hmm. um, and the way that Chichester writes it is each issue he jumps forward in time a little bit. So there's large gaps that you kind of have to fill in in order to understand what has how the story has progressed, which leaves a lot of people confused, I think. And then the artwork also. McDaniel he is he's a great artist but he became very experimental during this story and I think it didn't help uh, because he was being overly creative with his layouts and very experimental with his shadows and uh, it became a little bit messy
0: yeah it's a little kind of minimalistic in a way he was ho- he, there's a lot of dependency on the coloring to, to pick up the firmness of the yeah. artwork and it just never quite works in the way they want it to
1: which is too bad, because he is fantastic. Uh, Nightwing, Nightwing and yeah. And the, the work uh, that he even did on Daredevil before Fall from Grace is mm-hmm. excellent. Yeah, he just uh, was a little too experimental, I think, during that storyline.
0: Yeah, and, and in terms of Punisher, uh, my favorite from the 90s that I read was Suicide Run.
1: Okay, where... I haven't got to that point yet. But yeah, that, Which that's, is, awesome. uh... that's Chuck Dixon, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's Chuck Dixon. In 93, 94, basically he gets caught in the explosion of a building and is presumed dead, and then there's like five or six different Punishers running around, kind of trying to take up his mantle. Sounds Um, like
1: Reign of Superman.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) So there's a uh, Captain America run by Steve Englehart in the 1970s. It's also a similar idea. It's pretty fun. I, I enjoyed it much more than I expected to. But yeah, I've never been a big Punisher fan, so hearing that recommendation really helps me. Yeah, And I'm glad to hear the for, for Better or For Worse is doing well enough for you to get through all nine volumes. That's that's exciting. Well,
1: it is for now. I mean, as long as people keep buying them, we'll keep on putting them out. And so that's the important part. A lot of people, and myself included, will buy the first volume with every intention to keep on going, but then I just lose track of it, or I, it doesn't happen. And then that's usually the case. The first few volumes sell really well, and then it's natural that the sales will dwindle as you get further and further on. But as long as we have that firm base of of people who are buying every volume, then we'll keep on going until the end. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything, any other new projects. I'm just, for better or for worse, is all of my time right now. Um, I'm a stay-at-home dad, and so this is the stuff that I do between like after bedtime or while kids are at school and that kind of stuff. So uh, I don't have time to pick up any more projects, but hopefully once for better or for worse is done, then I'll have something lined up to go on after that, but we'll have to see. I don't know.